time for Legally Speaking on CFAX 1070. Joining us as always, Michael Mulligan, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Good morning, Michael. How are you? I'm doing great. Uh, great to be here. It is the first day of school for many young people here in the province of British Columbia. Family law and conflicts between parents concerning in-person or online school on the agenda today. Yes, indeed. Uh, so it's the first day here for us and uh, different parts of the country uh, have, of course, opened up at slightly different times, uh, producing uh, now some uh, litigation concerning whether it is uh, desirable for uh, children to go back to school uh, in person as opposed to doing uh, something online or in some other way. Uh, and we've seen uh, over the past uh, two weeks or so um, several cases out of Ontario, uh, and there are cases that arise where you have, of course, separated parents uh, and shared responsibility uh, for parenting. Uh, and you have one of the parents who says, I want the child back in school, and the other parent saying, oh, my goodness, uh, uh, that puts the child or other family members at risk. Um, and uh, one of those uh, cases uh, came recently out of the Ontario Supreme Court, um, and it was a circumstance of a mother and father uh, who were uh, separated. It was uh, The son, I believe, was nine years of age, uh, and the mother wished to have the child return in person to school, and the father didn't want that, wanted him to um, continue with uh, online uh, schooling, which is what uh, had been done uh, at the end of the last school year. Uh, and the uh, fact pattern was made uh, more complicated by a few factors, including that the uh, father, who wished to have the child continue with online education, um, had uh, a mother who was, at, uh, who was immunocompromised and at heightened risk if uh, she was infected, uh, and as well uh, his uh, girlfriend's mother, whom they lived with, had asthma and was also at greater risk uh, if uh, she became infected. Things were further complicated uh, by virtue of the fact that the, uh, both of the parents were first responders, the father a police officer and the mother a nurse. Uh, and so it became uh, one of the considerations was the complication of being able to manage shift work uh, if the child was not in school. So that was the, the, the matrix the judge had to sort out. And the approach the judge took, and it's the same approach that a judge would be required to take in British Columbia, uh, is to assess what should be done based on the best interests of the child, right? Uh -huh. that, that's always the, the, the watchword of making uh, decisions like this uh, concerning children. Yes. Uh, and so uh, that has some um, significant uh, implications, right? Because, for example, the, the judge uh, didn't uh, uh, accept the evidence about the increased risk to the child's grandmother, uh, and the risk posed to uh, the mother of the uh, father's girlfriend, right? Both of whom would be put in some increased jeopardy as a result of the child going to school and potentially coming home and infecting them. Um, the girlfriend's mother lived with them. The grandmother did not. Um, and the judge concluded that, um, well, those people may be at increased risk, uh, the child in this case who this is another factor the child had uh, has adhd and there was some evidence that the child would benefit from in-person interactions at school huh. and so the judge had to weigh up what might be bad for the grandmother 
uh, and potential new mother-in-law, right? Yes. Uh, versus the interests of the child. Huh. And then the judge in this case came down in favor of uh, having the child return to school, as the mother was uh, asking for, despite the risks posed to the child's grandmother and the potential mother-in-law. Um, the judge referred as well to uh, factors that included that both parents were first responders as a police officer and a nurse, and so they both, of course, had an increased risk of contracting COVID-19, which could impact both the child and the uh, grandma and the, but the potential mother-in-law. Um, and the judge also had to take into account and did take into account what the current medical circumstance was in Niagara, in Ontario, where rates have been very low there. So clearly a very challenging balancing act, um, and uh, really it uh, points out how these things have to be approached, which is what's in the child's best interest, even if, as in this case, um, it may be contrary to the interests of the grandmother or future mother-in-law, because both of those people, because of their medical conditions, are put in greater jeopardy. Uh, but the uh, judge in making that decision concluded that uh, the child's best interest had to be uh, paramount. Um, and as a result, uh, despite the concerns of the father, uh, the child will be returning in person to school. Um, and so hopefully the grandma and the uh, future mother-in-law uh, will remain safe. Uh, but that's how uh, courts both there and here would need to analyze those kind of difficult conflicts, always from the perspective of what's in the best interest of the child, even if it may be contrary to the interests of uh, other people. You and I have spoken in the past about how family law practitioners, and of course I I don't want to suggest that any litigator might have an easier or tougher job than any other litigator, but family law tends to be where passions will arise at what would seem for outside observers to be as not consequential as the participants themselves. This can make these sort of disputes particularly protracted, among other things. There are more than, or is more than one way to solve them though, isn't there? There are, uh, and there are continuous efforts to try to uh, help resolve what are referred to uh, as high-conflict family litigation cases. Yes, yes. And what happens is, happily, most family law cases aren't that. Most people act reasonably and realize, you know, we're in this for the kids and, uh, you know, try their best to resolve things. But there is a small percentage of cases that consume a vast quantity of resources uh, both of the parents and of the court system. Um, and th- there was one of those cases uh, recently uh, dealt with in B.C. where the, uh, the judge described some of that uh, background in fighting, legal fighting that had been going on for uh, the last 10 years uh, following the breakdown of a marriage where there were uh, children involved. Yes. And it was described as uh, including at least 10 judges of the B.C. Supreme Court had made decisions uh, the case involved six large volumes of material, 30 affidavits, many exceeding 130 pages, 10 binders of pleadings, and described the, uh, the 11-year-old child as um, having never known anything in his life other than parental strife. Hmm. Uh, and so uh, clearly uh, that would be the sort of case where you would describe as high conflict. Yes. Right? Yes. You can only imagine the cost for the parents in addition to the cost of the whole justice system. Um, and... 
those are also the kind of cases which are likely to produce these sort of, you know, school COVID conflicts, right? Of course, that would be the sort of thing that might well produce an argument. Uh, And one of the uh, approaches that's now been getting some greater traction in British Columbia uh, is the concept uh, of using a, a parenting coordinator. And the idea there would be that uh, a judge could uh, appoint a parental coordinator, the cost of which would be paid by the parents, of course, uh-huh. in some formula. Yes. And the idea is that when there's a dispute over things which would be potentially relatively minor, like, you know, can they pick up a drop-off, be at, uh, you know, Wendy's and not the McDonald's parking lot, or, you know, literally these are the kind of things people fight over, right? Uh-huh. Uh, you know, or can we change weekends so, you know, child can see grandma, right? Yes. These are the kind of things which literally would produce affidavits and hearings in court, right, at great expense. And the idea would be to uh, assign a parenting coordinator so that those kinds of more minor disputes could be sort of arbitrated and decided by that person in a prompt fashion rather than having every minor dispute about whether, you know, what time Johnny's getting off soccer practice and who's picking him up and, you know, can he go to the, you know, out-of-town hockey game or whatever used to occur prior to COVID-19, have the parenting coordinator decide those issues in a summary way after hearing from both parents, uh, and the idea would be to keep things out of court, reduce the cost to the parents, and reduce the cost to the uh, justice system, just because of how much time these cases uh, consume. Huh. Uh, and so in that case I mentioned where you had these parents that had been fighting for 10 years over uh, all manner of things, the most recent application uh, involving uh, one of them asking for 10 different orders, and I think the other one asking for five different orders <laughs> over all kinds of uh, things. Uh, the judge in that case um, uh, did appoint one of these parenting coordinators, and uh, I think that's an example of some good of creative uh, development in that area of the law, uh, trying to deal with that small portion of cases that takes up just so much uh, time. Uh, And hopefully as a result of that, the 11-year-old child will uh, eventually know something uh, in his life other than his parents endlessly going to court to fight about uh, drop-off times and uh, this sort of thing. Indeed. Now, I wonder if the decisions of that coordinator may be subject to judicial review and it's sort of we end up back at square one. That's quite possible, right? I mean, uh, ultimately, you're not going to be able to prevent any mechanism for that to be reviewed. Uh, But the idea would be that many of these things, hopefully, uh, if decided by some dispassionate third party, would be accepted and people could move along from it. Um, So uh, it's not going to solve anything, everything, right? And if you have people that are just bound and determined to fight with one another, they're going to find some way to legally fight with one another, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I sometimes say I'm you know, happy about the fact that I practice uh, criminal law uh, and not family law, because some of the underlying issues in family law are things like, you know, your ex-spouse doesn't love you anymore, and, and there's no court application that's going to solve that, whereas in the field of criminal law, things are a little bit more well-defined, and I'm more likely to be able to help. Indeed. I want to take our break here. Let's do that. All right, we'll continue with Legally Speaking coming up in just a moment. Michael Mulligan from Mulligan Defense Lawyers continuing as we go through the legal stories of the week.
as we continue our conversation with Michael Mulligan from Mulligan Defense Lawyers, including the possibility of using a coordinator to solve relatively minor disputes. And again, as Michael has helpfully elucidated for us, when we say minor dispute, we mean minor. We mean should the drop-off for the child be at the Wendy's parking lot or the McDonald's parking lot or something similar to that. Michael, anything else on that matter before we move on? Well, I think, uh, as I mentioned, we're, we're likely to see disputes arising over things like returning to school and whether a child should stay in school uh, bubbling up through the family justice system, right? We've, uh, I mentioned these cases from Ontario that have started, and we also now have a little bit of experience watching uh, how uh, attempted school restarts, including in Alberta and other provinces, have gone so far. Um, in Alberta, of course, they're about a week or so ahead of us in terms of reopening of schools. Um, they've already uh, sent hundreds of uh, children uh, home to self-isolate uh, as a result of potential exposure at school. Uh, and I think this morning they just announced uh, two what they describe as outbreaks at schools. Uh, so I understand that to be transmission and more multiple people in the school that have been infected. So you can easily imagine how um, that circumstance is likely to produce a great pressure uh, on the uh, family justice system to re to resolve uh, disputes between uh, parents who have uh, competing views about you know what is in the best interest of a, a child um, and you can also imagine how some of those uh, concerns would have some particular high degree of uh, uh, urgency, and it yes. may not seem satisfactory if you say, look, we're going to have a hearing in three weeks in front of a Supreme Court judge. If somebody is concerned about, you know, should Johnny continue going to the school when, you know, somebody else in the class or down the hall has been uh, infected with uh, COVID. So uh, that model of using a, uh, a parenting coordinator might help as well with some of those uh, uh, urgent uh, matters uh, where a decision has to be made more quickly than what might be possible uh, if you have to go into court and get before a judge with all the attendant material and process that that entails. So I, I think it's a, a model that's likely to get uh, more traction uh, in our uh, current uh, context. What's next on the agenda? Uh, next on the agenda, I think, is a, uh, there are two other interesting things, if time permits. Mm -hmm. um, uh, one, uh, one of those uh, decisions actually just came out uh, this morning, um, and uh, this was a decision of the uh, B.C. Court of Appeal uh, that uh, referenced a, uh, an interesting and now little-used section of the criminal code, um, which permits on an appeal uh, the Court of Appeal to order the trial judge to produce a report about some subject matter that would assist in the appeal. Um, and that section of the criminal code, it's 682 sub 1, mm -hmm. is one that used to be used with greater frequency before we had things like tape recorders or digital recorders and transcripts. And so you would have an appeal and potentially no transcript of what exactly went on at the trial. And so this section was intended to allow the Court of Appeal to request of the trial judge a report about something so that the Court of Appeal could address it. Here, the interesting circumstance was it was a, a conviction in a tragic case. It was a conviction of first-degree murder with a, uh, uh, a woman convicted of um, murdering her infant child. Mm -hmm. um, and one of the issues on appeal were gestures allegedly made by one of the jurors to the, the uh, other part of the uh, family that suggested sympathy with them during the course of the trial. Huh. Um, and so 
there was uh, apparently some evidence uh, of that that the accused was presenting on the appeal. And so the, the Crown tried to apply for one of these uh, now little-used orders to ask uh, the judge uh, uh, whether the judge observed these uh, gestures. Uh, and ultimately the Court of Appeal concluded that uh, that would not be helpful or appropriate here uh, because there was evidence of what was being referred to already. Um, and uh, because if you simply had the judge say, no, I didn't see anything, that wouldn't necessarily advance the ball uh, very far, uh, I think, given these were alleged gestures to somebody or family members in the gallery. So an interesting case and an interesting uh, reference to that uh, now little used um, section of the criminal code. I'm curious, if no records existed like transcripts, what would the judge rely upon when the request was made to produce the report? Merely memory? Uh, yes, or notes. Judges okay. would have uh, uh, bench books where they would be recording their own notes of things that were done. Okay. Um, and you would have had in the past sort of appeals based on sort of a stated issue by the trial judge. Okay. Um, and you would, of course, have the reasons for the trial judge as long as those were produced in writing. Uh, but, uh, you know, uh, happily, uh, uh, thanks to modern uh, technology, we've advanced a fair bit from there. Um, it wasn't actually that many years ago that we had in British Columbia um, court uh, recorders or reporters who would be uh, typing out uh, using a uh, sort of a shorthand machine uh, a live transcript of what was going on in cases, and they could read them back or ultimately produce a transcript from their shorthand uh, notes, uh, which is a relatively remarkable thing. They were last used in um, sort of Supreme Court uh, jury trials, but now... In BC, over the last 25 years or so, uh, all of that has been digitized. So okay. everything going on in court is recorded by a, a digital audio system referred to as DARS, uh, and that's what's used to produce transcripts. So we've uh, we've advanced the ball happily quite a bit, uh, but this section of the code remains. And uh, I suppose there could be some unusual circumstance where, you know, the issue isn't uh, picked up on the uh, recorder, or there's something like this which wouldn't be something you could just ascertain by looking at the uh, the transcript of what happened. I'm reading here pre- and post-judgment interest, management fees, tax gross-up. These are complicated terms, Michael. How do they figure into our next case? <laughs> yeah, so this was, this was a case which was out of uh, Surrey, uh, and the essential fact pattern was a few years ago there was a bunch of snow and ice on the road, uh, and a woman in a car slid as a result of the snow and ice on the road, which hadn't been, I guess, properly cleared or salted, uh, causing a terrible car accident that's caused this person a lifetime of um, injuries. Um, and so uh, a, a jury found that the city of Surrey was negligent in failing to clear the snow there, but found that the woman involved was 75% contributorily negligent, I guess, based on how she was driving. Mm. Um, but now, that wasn't the end of the matter uh, because uh, of some of the, uh, the issues that you've just mentioned. And so that case, which went to the Court of Appeal and is now back, went back to the trial court, dealt with some of those uh, issues that people may not be aware of. Uh, and they, uh, the decision which just came out uh, addressed these concepts, including pre- and post-judgment interest. Uh -huh. and the idea there is that if somebody was due a certain amount of money to put them in the position they would have been in but for the accident here, uh -huh. they should receive interest uh, on that money up to the date of the decision. Uh, and then if there's some delay in paying the judgment, and there was here because of an appeal to the Court of Appeal, the person would also be entitled to interest 
that would accrue afterwards. Um, and so that's what pre- and post-judgment uh, interest would be. This case also involved uh, a relatively new uh, concept in BC, and that's the concept of uh, adding a what's referred to as a management fee, where there is a large award like this, uh, because in this case, uh, as in other tragic cases, the accident uh, caused the uh, person to have uh, a psychiatric injury, and they were incapable of dealing with their financial affairs. And so if you just give a lump sum award to somebody who's uh, not capable of managing their affairs as a result of a, an injury, that obviously isn't going to work, right? Yeah. They're gonna, money's going to be gone or not uh, invested properly. And so um, there can be various levels of that that are referred to, everything from you know, meeting with a financial advisor to, in this case, uh, the judge ordered uh, that the award include uh, an amount of $200,000, which will pay to have a uh, professional manager manage the award for the rest of the person's life because uh, the uh, head trauma they suffered in the uh, car accident meant that they just weren't able to do that themselves. Hmm. Um, and so uh, that's another concept that people may not be aware of, and, and I think it's a, a positive development uh, because uh, the, uh, the purpose of these awards, right, when you give somebody an amount of money in a car accident, uh, for example, yes. uh, is to try to put the person back in the position they would have been in, but for what happened to them. Uh, and so um, if you have somebody who uh, has suffered a, a psychiatric uh, injury uh, as a result of the accident, in order to get the person back in the position they would have been in, you know, able to pay their rent and buy food and, you know, whatever they might need, um, yeah, uh, that's something which is genuinely necessary, and you're you're not going to achieve the objective of putting the person back in the position they would have been in uh, if you don't provide that. Uh, now, of course, all of these things uh, may change uh, if the uh, uh, current government does implement uh, the proposed no-fault re yes. regime, because all, all of this would then be uh, over. You'd no longer have any uh, consideration of things like contributory negligence, and you would no longer have uh, consideration about putting the person back in the position they would have been in, everyone would simply be subject to receiving payments of the kind you might get uh, from a WCB claim. Uh, and so uh, there would be a very different regime uh, if those uh, changes uh, are implemented. Something to watch for. We're almost out of time. Michael Mulligan, thank you as always for the benefit of your knowledge and insight. Until next week. Thank you so much. Stay safe. You too. Bye now. Take care. Okay. Michael Mulligan, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers during the second half of our second hour every Thursday. You're on CFAX 1070.